So Luke 9, Luke 10 precede Luke 11. What happened in Luke 9? We talked about it in the uh, other messages this weekend. Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. And they go out and they have a good result. They come back and they you know, report that it worked. And so in Luke 10, it says, now after this, after what? After sending out the 12, Jesus sent out 72 others. So Jesus is expanding the ark. It's been Jesus alone. Now it's Jesus plus 12. That's 13. Now it's Jesus plus 72 more. That's 85. What he's doing is he's provoking a region-wide revival. And he sends them out two by two to all these towns and villages. And they're proclaiming the kingdom. And they're healing the sick. And they're raising the dead. And they're driving out demons. And Luke 10 goes on and tells us a little later in the chapter. You can fact check me later. I'm trying to, you know get through the sermon because we always have to deal with Sunday morning matters, including getting the kids out of Sunday school. Uh, but in Luke 10, they come back and they're like, Lord, this is so cool. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And he goes, right, they do. And then you should rejoice in that, but rejoice more in this, that your names are written in heaven. And it's not only that salvation is the greatest miracle, that's true, but it's also you couldn't do this but for the fact that your names are written in heaven. It's the presupposition. It's the a priori. But now we come to Luke 11. And it reads this way. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or his persistence or his importunity, different translations use different words, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, we'll instead of a fish give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, as I said, this, all, all scripture has context. And the context here is we've had good success with the 12. We've had more success with the 72. And now Jesus is praying, and he's gone, it says, to a certain place, which means it's a known place. It's a fixed location. It doesn't tell us where it is. It might have been up the hill and behind the rock. It could have been down the path by under the tree. But it was somewhere that when he went, they knew, he's praying, leave him alone. He's communing with his father. And it, and it was somehow a part of his normal routine and pattern and that's why it was a certain place. They'd seen it enough. They're like, oh, yeah, okay. He's back there again. He's doing that thing. And so he goes to pray. But when he's done, one of these um, 
84 others, the 12 and the 72, one of them says to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, the reason they're doing this is because they're looking at Jesus and they know what ha happened to them when they were out on mission. They, the 12 know what happened in Luke 9 and the 72 know what happened in Luke 10. But, you know, for all their success, they had moments where it didn't work. And we know this because, we're not going to turn there, but you can fact check me. Mark 9, late in Jesus' ministry, he's gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he leaves nine of the apostles running a healing crusade. Three of them he takes up on the mountain with him, Peter and James and John. And they come down and they got a mess on their hands because here's this kid that they cannot get delivered. And so we know that despite their success, they had moments where things didn't work so well. And so what they're really doing is they're saying, Lord, for all of our success and all the great breakthrough we saw, you got some mojo that we don't have. How do we get that mojo? What's the secret sauce? That's what's going on there. And I'm just saying it in kind of modern English to take out the religiosity. But, but that's what's happening. They're, they want to know, what's your key to breakthrough, Jesus? And then they say something else. It's kind of a throwdown, really, which you can get away with with friends, but maybe nobody else. You know, Lord, John, you know, John the Baptist, that guy who's dead, <laughs> he taught his disciples to pray. You never taught us to pray. How come? So all rabbis should teach their disciples to pray, and we don't know how to pray the way you pray. And if we do how to pray the way you pray, maybe we would have the same mojo that you've got. And so they're asking for a key to breakthrough. They're asking for a secret. And so Jesus says, all right, game on. When you pray, do it this way. Start out by calling him Father. None of this Yahweh stuff. Anyway, a good Jew wouldn't say that. They would only call him Hashem, which means the name. They would never utter the name. Christians, by the way, are borderline blasphemous when they use that name as cavalierly as they do, at least in the eyes of the Orthodox Jewish community. So uh, they would never have used that name. But there were a lot of other names that got thrown around for God. It was a very religiously mixed society. You had Samaritans up the road. You had the Romans who had invaded and brought their gods. The Greeks had come before the Romans and their gods were around. There are all kinds of names. People were confused. Think of the woman at the well. It's kind of like our day. And so Jesus says, all right, first things first, call him Father. And when you do that, what you are doing is you are saying something about him. You're saying something about your relationship to him. You're saying that you have an intimate two-way communication with him. And you're not just saying it as a propositional truth. You are stepping into that and you're saying, can we have a conversation? And so when you pray, start out by calling him Father. And when you do that, understand that if he is the king of the universe, which is a standard Jewish term for God... Blessed be thou, Lord our God, king of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth is a standard Jewish blessing. If he's the king of the universe, then you are his son or his daughter. That makes you a prince or princess of the universe. So understand that. So this has something to do with your identity. It has something to do with your orientation. And when you do this, say, hallowed be your name. Now, we don't use the word hallowed anymore. It's an old-fashioned English term. It was popular four or 500 years ago in the English language. It comes directly from the King James Bible, 
which was translated in 1611. This is 2021. So the King James Bible is 410 years ago, almost half a millennium. Um, in those days, they used the term hallowed. The only way ever in English that we use the word hallowed anymore is Halloween. And, of course, Halloween has its own storyline and everything else. But the, the, the background of Halloween is it's the even, that's the een part, it's a contraction, drop the V, it's the even, the evening before All Hallows Day. Hallow means those that are set apart or are the saints. So that's the story behind Halloween. It's the evening before All Saints Day, which falls on November 1. And so it used to be the holiest day in the Christian year. It's not anymore, I recognize, but, but that's where its roots are. So that's the only place in modern English that we use the term hallow. It's a confusing word. But to hallow means to consecrate, and consecrate means to set apart for special purpose. Therefore, Jesus says, I'm referencing the other version that we all know far better from Matthew. In that same context, Jesus says, call no man your father. And I just want to say something here. In a lot of our renewal streams right now, today, live, real time, there is this tendency now, we're starting to call the leaders of these movements Papa so-and-so, fill in the first name. I won't name any names because I'm not trying to call anyone out, but we call no man our father. It's one of the problems the Catholics ran into. <laughs> Look where it got them. So let me just say this, and by the way, this has happened to me. I was leading a team one time. We were in another land, another country, and we were having dinner together, and we were debriefing the ministry time, and someone called me Papa Ken, and I turned and I said, if you say that again, I will put you on a plane and send you home. Take it back. I really believe in this. I'm a father to my children. I'm dad, but I am a papa to no man. Not in that sense. So let's drop the idolatry of men, and it's happening, even in our charismatic renewal streams, and I guarantee you it will shut down the flow of power that we just saw on display last night. This is a hallowed thing. His name, the name Father, is reserved for him and him alone. No one else gets to get that name. I don't care who they are. I don't care how many books they have. I don't care how much social media they have. I don't care how many followers they have. So watch it. When you pray, say, Father, you are unique. You are the one and only. There is no one else like you. Don't misuse this name by being careless with it or calling anyone else your father because you have only one father who is a father like this, one and only one, and he is the one in heaven. That's your orientation. That's how you plug the cable in and you connect to the power source. That's where it begins. It's not where it ends. And so we are, we're, we're using this name with a special purpose. And so carry it within you, within your heart, as something special. Because as the princes and princesses of the kingdom, you bear the presence of the name. Because he has set his name upon you, calling you his sons and daughters. You know, I have a friend, and he lives in Texas, um, He's out of the ministry now. He's retired. But uh, back in the day, he had a pretty good-sized church in the northern part of Dallas. And, uh, you know, we used to do a lot of ministry together. And one day, uh, I was at his home. And at the time, his two sons were kind of younger. 
and they were getting ready to go out uh, with their friends. And just before they went out the door, he called them over to himself, and he was sitting in the chair. And he said, boys, come over here. So they came over, and he said, now I want you to both look me in the eye. So they looked him in the eye. And he was a man from the Marine Corps. He was kind of a man of, you know, stately bearing. And, and he, was, he was a good-hearted guy, but, but he was no one to mess around with either. And he said, I want you to look me in the eye. So they looked him in the eye, and he said, now listen, you carry the name Yarborough. That's their last name. Uh, and they said, yes, sir. And he said, um, when you go out, I don't want you to do a single thing that would dishonor the family name. Do you understand me? And they said, yes, sir. And he said, all right, go have a good time. You know, there's something of that that we could all stand to take on board, especially in a day of so much lawlessness, lack of holiness, Patricia. There's something of that that all of us could do well to remember. This isn't just, yeah, pops, we're going to rock up and call you dad. And a lot of Christians have that kind of cavalier thing. So this idea of reverencing the name of God means a certain kind of respect. It's intimate. We don't need to be like, oh my God, he's going to burn me to a cinder. We don't need to have that. But there is that sense of he is still God and you are not. And so carry that in your heart too. Even as you know that you are a son or daughter of the king. You're a prince or princess. And so now that you understand that and you've got your mind clear, pray for the coming of the kingdom. There it is. Your kingdom come. And by the way, this isn't just a kingdom that goes to distant lands. It doesn't just go to Peru or to Pakistan or to wherever you want to pick. It doesn't just go there. This is a realm that can come very close because if you're with your father, you can sit at table with him. And when you're at the table, you're at arm's length. Pass the peas, pass the potatoes, pass the meatloaf, please. And so with this petition, we're saying, may your reign and your rule, may your dynamic power be released and bring that kingdom, not just in distant lands, but close, very close, even at arm's length. This is what Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And I think maybe for those disciples at that time, they'd kind of gotten already a whiff of glory of the wrong kind. And they were, they were looking to build their own franchise. Peter later would say, Lord, they may all abandon you, but I never will. And by the way, I'd make a great Lord Chamberlain in your kingdom. James and John were a little more disingenuous. They put their mother up to asking, can these sons of mine sit on your right and your left? And Jesus sees right through it. He turns to them, not to the mom. He goes, you don't know what you're asking for. It's not even mine to grant, but <laughs> stand by. You want those positions? You just watch what's going to happen to you. And so uh, there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. And so they may have already been kind of falling into empire building. And he's really telling them, pray for the kingdom to break out right where you are. Worry about the empire stuff later. Well, now that you've got your head in the game, here are your key petitions. Number one, give us this day our daily bread. And so this is a prayer for daily sustenance. And the reason we pray for daily sustenance is simple. He's already said he's going to give it. Now, for a lot of us, we struggle with this. I struggled with this for many years because I grew up in a family where my father died where I was four, when I was four years old. And uh, my mother didn't remarry. She had suitors, but uh, in the end, she turned them all down. And so it was just my mother and me against the world. And she, she had a job. She was a nurse. But 
you know, we call it a pink collar profession. We were always on the edge of broke. And my father had left a pile of debt that she had to pay off when he died. And so there was just this kind of ongoing, we're never going to make it. There's never going to be enough. And I grew up underneath that. And it stayed with me well into my adulthood. For a lot of people, they live with that same mentality. But Jesus says, pray for your daily bread. And here's why. Because if you know anything about the way businesses work, and you are now in your father's business, if you're in the kingdom, you don't just live there. You're, you're joined to its enterprise, its expansion, its growth, its propagation. And here's what we know. If you're, say, a partner in an accounting firm or a law firm or well, this is Ohio, so I won't really say investment banking, but investment banking firms operate this way. Management consulting firms operate this way. If you're a partner in the business and your father is the senior partner and you're one of the other partners, junior partner, <clears throat> you generally get what's called a draw. Regardless of how much money the firm is making, you get a draw. Most people would mistake it for a salary, but it's actually an advance on what will come in the future. Think about that for a second. The Holy Spirit is a deposit on what will come in the future, too. So you get a draw. And by most people's standards, that draw could be pretty cushy. I mean, some of these draws are, you know, good six-figure numbers. But that's because these firms are very profitable. And so what they do is they give you a draw so that you don't have to worry about whether you're going to pay your electric bill or whether there's groceries on the shelf. If you have a car payment, a lot of those people make enough money, they just buy, pay cash for their cars. But if you have a car payment, the car payment's going to get made. Same with the house payment. You're not worrying about all that stuff because you can then be focused on what? The business. And this is why your father wants you to have trust in him for your daily provision so you can be focused on one and only one thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this is all tied into this idea, okay, you're my father. You're going to bring the provision I need. I may not even know where it's coming from. And, you know, it took a while for the Lord to move me out of my poverty mentality and all that my mother had put on me. But eventually I got to a better place with it. I'm not saying I'm done, but I've, I've made progress. And I've seen this to be a truism, and it's, it's a bankable truism, that if you will put God's business first, he will put your business first. And for a lot of people, they, they have a breakdown in their kingdom efficacy, their ability to prosecute the matters of the kingdom, because they actually aren't putting God's matters first. This is the way it really works in God's household. You know, the Lord uh, spoke to a king he's not usually studied or preached on. And he, he'd gone out to war because he'd been attacked by the army of Ethiopia. His name was King Asa. Some people say Asa. But anyway, he was a Judean king. And his story is found in, um, I can't remember, is it First or Second Chronicles? It must be Second Chronicles. Yeah, yeah it's 15. Second Chronicles 15. And so, um, anyway, before Asa goes out to war, he seeks the face of the Lord. He was one of the good kings, or better kings. He wasn't perfect, but he was better. He didn't end well, though. And, uh, and he's outnumbered two to one, and he wins the battle because he sought the Lord. And as he's returning in victory, an unknown prophet, he's named in the Bible, but it's the only time we see him, so we don't know anything else about him. His name is Azariah. He's the son of Oded. And Azariah, the son of Oded, meets King Asa returning from war, and he says to him, 
Hear me, King Asa, and all Judah and all Benjamin. This is for all the people of God, not just the king. Flock of God, are you paying attention? This is for you. This is what, king, what Azariah said to King Asa. He said, I am with you when you are with me. Boom, there it is. You make God's priorities your priorities, God will make his priorities your priorities. And your priorities are things like feeding your kids and having gas in the car and getting things done. So this is alignment that we're creating. This is, this is a critical part of, of seeing these kinds of breakthroughs that we're, that we're after. And we rely on our Father because he will give us our draw that we need against what is coming. Jesus said one other thing about this, by the way. It's not in this version of the Lord's Prayer, but it is in the one that's in Matthew 6. Be specific, get to the point. Don't make endless petitions about this. Because if you do, your multiplication of words is really a betrayal of your lack of confidence in your Father's willingness to provide. Now, this is not the same thing as, I'm going to claim it and stand on it and never bring it up again. That's a totally different thing. Now you're back into our noetic world. But there is a sense of, Father, I really need this, and I, I need you to bring it. Would you please bring it? You might come back and go, uh, you haven't brought it yet. I'm a little nervous. But, but it, it's, a, it's a reduced number, and it, it betrays a lack of anxiety of soul. Does this make sense? That's the important point. And so back to the idea of draws. Well, the true upside for any executive in a, in a partnership like I've described comes when the when the, un, uh, when the company prospers. And so when the kingdom prospers, then God's increase will be upon you too. I'm not a prosperity preacher, but I have found it to be true that if you go after the things of the kingdom, the Lord will also pay attention to other matters. All right, so that's point one. Go to him with your needs. Point two, forgive us our sins and then there's this kind of little bit of extra for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So forgiveness is a key, and we seek forgiveness for two reasons, two reasons. The first one is we need forgiveness. We sin, we make mistakes, uh, we say things we wish we hadn't. Sometimes we do things we know we shouldn't have, and we think we'll get away with it. It's, we're just cutting a little bit of a corner. But anyway, um, we need forgiveness. But the other problem is if we don't get forgiveness, we are actually bound. And if you want to remove the, uh, the impurities in your life that make insulators rather than superconductors, to use the language I was using last night, part of how you do that is you actually come to a deep and abiding sense of forgiveness. Now, let me just say this. Most Christians I know are profoundly good at being deceived. And what I mean by that is you ask them, have you forgiven that person who offended you? And they're like, well, sure I have. Okay, how'd you do that? Well, I just forgave him. Okay. Have you ever seen him on the street corner or in the diner? Yeah. What happened? Well, nothing. Okay. Uh, and if you think of them, what happens? Nothing. I believe you. You've forgiven him. That's awesome. That's cognitive and noetic. It's, it's saying the words, and the words are important, but there's been no substantive reality behind it. What, what Jesus is really referring to is you need the experience of God's power and forgiveness coming down upon you so that you are freed. Both of the two women in wheelchairs last night 
that the Lord touched. I won't go into details because they're private, but I will say this. Both of them had an issue back in their past where they thought they'd forgiven somebody for something, but in fact they'd, they'd done it in a cognitive noetic way and they'd never had the power descend on them and free them. And you know how we knew that something was happening? They both broke down in tears. And they weren't yet healed. They were just praying and, you know, I was guiding the process. But, but this is a critical, critical point. We must experience the forgiveness of God. It's not enough just to talk the talk. And so Jesus says, forgive our sins. He's saying, Father, put us under the funnel. Put me under the spout where the glory comes out so that I can really experience your forgiveness. And with it, I can release forgiveness. And so the pipe is clear. I now am acting more like a superconductor or an unclogged pipe. Same idea. Are you with me? And he says, we forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Well, that's the way this translation reads it. But everyone who's sinned against us. And, you know, one of the hardest things to forgive, I'll just put my finger on this one and we'll keep going. But one of the hardest things to forgive of all for Christians is people who will not ever apologize to us. We would give the forgiveness if they would ask, but they don't ask. Sometimes they're oblivious to the fact that they were offensive. Sometimes they don't care that they were offensive. Sometimes they were deliberately offensive. Sometimes they've moved away and we can't find them, even in today's world of the Internet. And sometimes they've died. There's all kinds of reasons that can get in the way. But we're just waiting for that person to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And maybe it's never going to happen. You still got to forgive those people. It's really a critical part of this cycle of power. And so, like I said, Christians are among the most deceived people on earth. Because we have all this happy talk about forgiveness. But when the chips are down, do we actually do it? And this is true not just for, you know, like the rank and file. I will say there are a lot of key leaders in the body of Christ that I've had interactions with who, uh, when the chips are down, they break relationships with people rather than engaging in forgiveness and reconciliation. And if you're going to be a person who sees breakthrough, Jesus has given them the mojo. This is the code, I'm telling you right now. They asked, he gave. I think that's biblical too. But this thing is really, it, it's essential. So if there is that thing inside of you when you think of, you know, whoever it is, person A, and you kind of go, you got a problem and you got to get the forgiveness going to them, but you also need the forgiveness of God coming down on you so that whatever that offense, whatever that hurt, whatever that damage that happened to you is, that's getting cleared out. In fact, let me just say this, make it a little stronger. In the 23rd chapter of Luke, we're not going to go there, but in verse 34, Jesus is on the cross. He's been crucified, and it's an unjust execution. <clears throat> what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Now, this is speculative theology, so don't, don't run away with it. But just consider this. What might have happened to the value of the atonement if Jesus had said, Father, get them. I refuse to forgive them. Might it have derailed the power of the atonement? I don't know, but Jesus was teaching them this is one of my keys of power. And he was tested in every way that we are tested. So I'm sure there must have been a moment that at least flitted through his mind. 
I'm the king of the universe. I'm going to withhold forgiveness. I'm going to burn these guys to ashes. But no, 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 no. That's the, that's the voice of Satan. Forget it. You understand where I'm going with that? This is so important. All right. So without both giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, both stop flowing and power dies with it. And then the third petition is, lead us not into temptation. Now, someone would say, well, but God could never tempt us. He, he, he doesn't tempt anyone. That's what the book of James tells us, and that's correct. But I think really the thrust of this is, uh, please keep us from the error of falling back into unforgiveness because the temptation to do so is so great. So, provision, so you can trust God. <laughs> say it again. So the third point of the, of the prayer, lead us not into temptation. And I said, for a lot of us, we go, wait a minute, God couldn't do that because the book of James says God doesn't tempt anybody. I don't think God is going to tempt us. It's rather don't let us be led into temptation because the temptation to revert to status quo ante, to revert to that unforgiveness is so great because of our fallen nature, because we are human, because we easily go back to that other way. And so he's given them three things that they need to do. They need to trust their father for provision, having oriented correctly that he is father. They need to trust him for provision so they can be about the kingdom work. They need to forgive and receive forgiveness, both. And it's experiential, it's not just, it's not just words. And then they have to stay in that place so that they are a continuous flow, not just these sort of episodes that are punctuated by six and ten year gaps of nothing going on. Does that make sense? All right, well, that's the end of the prayer, and there it all is. But, you know, Jesus is a good rabbi, so now he's going to give midrash on what he told them. And so he now branches into this story, which is missing from the Matthew account. And I think it's interesting, actually, that we have these two accounts. You know, people have spent a lot of ink arguing about the differences between the Matthew and the Luke version of the Lord's Prayer. I think it's the same prayer, but it has different applications. One is kind of the general way that so many people pray it. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, blah, blah, blah. And that has value, but this is, the, this is now being given to disciples in private. And he's saying, let me tell you what's really going on in this prayer. And it applies to you, and it applies to the ministry I've given you. And so there's the kind of general, everyday Christian focus and then there's the one that the for the it says his disciple asked about this right so this is the other kind of deeper dive and often with Jesus and his disciples privately he would give them offline instruction that was beyond what the crowds got so you're being brought into the inner realm here of Jesus and his story of power I mean this is a really critical point and so we could, we could move on and say alright I got it but you actually don't have it and he knows it and so that's why he's going to tell this other story and so he tells the story of a persistent man who's rebuffed by his friend. And, you know, given the way the story read, we don't need to reread it, you could make the argument with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? But this guy comes and, you know, he's got another friend who's come for a visit. And the, the guy that he's petitioning, he won't get out of bed. And Jesus makes the point that although they have a friendship... It's not enough to compel that friend to rise from his bed, but in the end, it's the persistence, it's the importunity, it's the expectant praying that gets the breakthrough. 
And then he gives an exhortation, which it doesn't work in Greek, but it's really convenient because it works perfectly in English. He says they should ask, but the Greek is a really clear construction. It's a, it's a, it's a continuous action. So what he's really saying is ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will open to you. And so the acronym this gives us in English, again, it does not work in Greek, is ask. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. And so what we see in this is something that's totally contrary to the noetic way of praying that most of us have been infected with in American Christianity. He's saying one of my secrets to breakthrough is that if I don't get breakthrough at first, I go back to my father and I hammer the door down and I say, Father, give me the healing for that paralyzed man. You say, Jesus never prayed that way. You're wrong. Because in the book of Hebrews, it says in the days of his earthly suffering, Jesus offered up prayers, plural, many, with loud cries and supplications, and he was heard because of that. It kind of reminds me of the <laughs> one of the Dirty Harry movies. You know, they're, they're being surrounded, and <laughs> it's a Western. So, you know, they're handing out the guns, and he goes, you just got to get mad dog ugly. Well, you just got to get mad dog praying. And I've seen this again and again when we pray for people. You know, I know because I've prayed for a lot of cripples and paralyzed people. Rarely do they get healed instantaneously. I know what you see on TV. I don't know what to say. Maybe it's Christian theater. Maybe it's real. I don't know. Maybe their anointing's greater. I'm not sure. But I know in my experience, and I've seen over 300 cripples healed, I know it's rarely instantaneous. And so when I'm, when I'm up against a cripple, I usually save them for the end of the meeting because I know it's going to take a little longer. And I'm going to have to ask, seek, knock. I'm going to have to drill into whatever that multi-layered thing is that's causing this problem. I've got to work the integrated model. I'm asking a lot. I'm asking him. I'm asking them. I'm seeking, I'm trying to find target acquisition on what is the thing that is in the center of that that will get them free. And I'm going to knock. And if they don't get healed the first time, Father, I'm back. Father, you said I'm expecting you to do something. Father, I need this. And it's in that importunity, it's in that persistence, it's in that unwillingness to back down that breakthrough comes. And that's what Jesus said. Sometimes I even knock like that. I'll you know, reach over to the stage or whatever. Now someone's going to say, well, man, Ken, you're really embellishing this. No, I'm not. In fact, the very first time I ever preached this sermon, I was um, in Australia, and there was the, uh, the dean of a Bible college, a seminary, present in the meeting. Of course, I didn't know he was there. But afterward, he came up to me and he said, I've never heard anybody preach that passage the way you just did. And he said, but I can tell you that is the most airtight theology I have ever heard in my life. And I have absolutely nothing to say. If this were a paper you were submitting, I would give you an A-plus on it. So it passed muster with a theologian. But let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I was traveling in Australia, and I went to the island of Tasmania. It's offshore on the soft, south coast of the country. 
There's about 100 miles of open ocean between um, basically the coastline of Victoria, which is where Melbourne, Australia is located, until you get to Tasmania. So most people fly, you could go on a boat. Anyway, I went there and we were having some meetings, very powerful meetings, and I was working with a church there in those years and just doing kind of stuff together. I would go every six months and I would stay for about a week um, between, you know, prophetic words that I had or, you know, healings that happened or whatever. People were coming from all over the island of Tasmania and that church grew from about 200 to 2,000 in the course of about three years. So it's kind of like what we see in, you know, you don't have to advertise a fire. So people were coming and anyway, so uh, <clears throat> this one night the pastor said, hey, you know, we work with this rehab center. Would you and your team be interested in going out there to preach? And I said, sure. So I had four guys with me and we, we went out to the rehab and it was a winter night in Tasmania. And when it's winter in Tasmania, the only thing between you and the South Pole is a barbed wire fence and 2,000 miles of the Southern Ocean. And that's it. So it's cold. And we walk in, and, and I don't remember, but I think there might have been five or six people in the rehab that night. It was very, very light attendance. I'm thinking, wow, look at my awesome international ministry. But anyway, we, we all shared a little bit and preached, and then it was time for prayer. And this guy comes up to me, and as he walks up, his right arm is hanging like this. And I, I checked it. It was warm, but it was limp. And he couldn't move it at all. So I start dialoguing with him about it, and I ask him, what's the story here? He says, well, um, I used to be a broccoli harvester. I'm thinking, that's random. <laughs> okay. And he says, you know, when you harvest broccoli, they give you a knife, and he, he showed me with his good hand. The blade looks like this. It's kind of like a linoleum knife that we use here in the United States. But when you're harvesting broccoli, and if you're right-handed, you... You know, you bend down in the broccoli patch, you grab the head of the stalk, you cut, and you throw into the bag that's hanging off your left side, and then you go, and of course, speed is at a premium. The more you harvest, the more you get paid. And so he was harvesting broccoli, and he got in too much of a rush, and he missed, and he severed the nerves in his arm. And for 25 years, his arm had been dead. It was warm, so he had blood flowing through it, but completely useless. And they tried to fix it surgically, and nothing had worked. 25 years. So I don't know why, but I've been studying this passage. The Lord had given me this insight out of the one I'm giving you now. I'm, I've actually learned more, so you're getting a better version of this than when I first got it. But anyway, so I, I don't know why, but that night I had in my mind, I'm going to pray for this guy 20 times before I give up. I don't know where I got that number, but that was the number I had. So we pray, nothing happens. And he goes, you know, man, I've had people pray for me for years. He goes, nothing ever happens. Thanks a lot. And I'm like, well, we're not done. And he goes, we're not? And I said, no. And by the way, just to clarify, each of these prayers, each of these moments of prayer, these engagements, it was around a minute, maybe 90 seconds, maybe as long as two minutes. Not overly long, but certainly not just be healed in Jesus' name, and it's done in five seconds. So, you know... He, he, okay, so we pray a second time, and then a third time, and he, nothing's happening, and he goes, okay, well, thanks, uh, you know, I got I to gotta go now. I said, no, you don't. I said, we're not done. And he kind of looks at me like, you're weird. <laughs> but see, I'm on this importunity thing. I'm on this ask, seek, keep asking, seek, keep seeking thing. And I'm, I'm questing for something. I'm like, I'm looking for it, and I know it's out there. 
We pray a sixth time. Now, if you caught what I said, each of these engagements is a minute to two minutes. So we're around 10 plus minutes into it, a little bit of back and forth dialogue. Some are running a little more than a minute, but you know, you kind of get a sense of it. And you know, this guy has no grid to pray this long at all. But it actually hasn't been that long yet. So sixth time, nothing happens. Seventh time, he goes, okay, man, I got to go. And I'm like, where are you going to go? You're in a rehab in Tasmania, and it's winter. <laughs> so he kind of, okay. He's standing there with his arm. Eight times we pray, nothing happens. Nine times we pray, nothing happens. On the tenth time, he goes, wait, I feel something. I said, what do you feel? He says, I feel tingling right here on the back of my right hand, right in this zone here. And uh, I said, that's it, God's healing you. Because I've seen this, particularly with paralyzed and, and severed type you know, limb situations. It is commonly the case that as when you say sleep wrong and your foot's asleep and you get up and it's numb and you kind of stagger across the room and then it starts to come awake and it, it hurts a little bit as that numbness is fading. That is the most common thing you will see when paralytics and cripples are getting healed. And when it happens, you're like, contact, range to target. I mean, you are on that thing, close in for the kill. I'm serious. I'm giving you a key to healing. So he says, well, I feel something in my hand. I said, that's it. God's healing you right now. The 11th time we pray, and he can do this. Now, this is an arm that's been hanging limp for 25 years. He can do this. But that's not, I don't consider that breakthrough, but it's, we're getting there. We are about to breach the wall. Baal Perazim, multiple breakthroughs. That's the 11th time. On the 12th time, he moves his arm all the way around like this and does like that. I said, show me your hand. He shows me his hand, and it's, it's, it's like this, but it's not, it's not quite working right. The 13th time we pray, he takes his hand, he does like this, and he closes it, but this pinky will not come into compliance with kingdom reality. <laughs> There's always one, right? I said, shake my hand. This guy takes my hand, this hand, we're shaking right hand to right hand, and he crushes me. I'm like, okay, I believe you, it's really working. I'm going to need healing next. <laughs> well, now he's in the game, right? 14 times we pray, nothing. 15, nothing. 16, 17, 18, 19, we get to my 20. His finger is still here, and we've been at it for now probably 45 minutes to an hour because the time adds up, and I've already told you it's a minute to two minutes for every cycle that we're doing. We're checking what we're doing as we're going. We're asking, seeking, knocking, and I'm like, well... Okay, I don't know what more to do. I said, are you coming to church tomorrow? He says, yeah. I said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow morning. And that's often what I do when I get stuck. So the next morning, we're in church. I'm you know, standing up front. I'm not in the pulpit, but people are filing in. And there's a doorway right over there in this church. And he comes into the doorway, and I see him, and I, I kind of catch his eye. And I look at him, and I just do like this. Right? And, and he holds up his hand, and it's, it's good, but he's still got the finger. I grab my four teammates. We surround him. We lay hands on him. It's now our 21st pass of prayer. Finger comes into kingdom alignment. The man is totally healed. Well, that's what we mean by ask, seek, knock. 
And even though I know there's a lot of teaching out there that everybody Jesus healed was instantly healed, that's actually not true. We even have a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus had to pray for a man more than once. And so, by implication, there must have been others too. And, you know, we don't, we don't totally get that, but it's just a thing. Do you remember when Elisha raised the dead boy from the, from the bed? He prayed seven times. So this is a key of kingdom breakthrough when it's the thing you need. If it's instantaneous, praise God. It's better for everybody. But if we got to win it centimeter by centimeter, we'll take it centimeter by centimeter. And now Jesus gives one more story, and he says, you know, what father among you? And, of course, we've already started out with the idea that our father is good, and we put him in that position. What father among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Well, the clear implication is none of them. And if he asks for a fish, you'll get a snake. Now, actually, there is one exception. I'm not saying Jesus is wrong, but there is one exception to this. In Indonesia, they eat so much fish because it's a nation of 3,000 islands. And so everybody eats fish all the time. If they find a snake, this is a delicacy. So if you ask for a fish in Indonesia, but they happen to kill a snake, they will give you the snake because they're upgrading your menu. Just throwing that in for fun. But you get the idea. You're not going to be given a serpent if you've been asking for fish. And then he says, if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? You know, there's a prophetic principle in the Bible that out of the mouth of two or more witnesses shall every matter be established. And so, you know, even when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, he says, well, the dream is sure and the interpretation is certain. Why? Because the dream came twice. Jesus gives it thrice. What's he saying? This is really key. It's a prophetic principle that he's using. He uses three illustrations of the same thing, just like there were corn stalks and sick cows. Well, different metaphors, different imagery, but it's the same message. And so Jesus is speaking to them prophetically, and he says, you know, even though you have evil in your hearts, you are evil, you do know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who makes it possible for you to find breakthrough. He's the one I operate from. Remember, I was touched in the river by the dove. I was filled by the bank of the river as I came out dripping wet, and I returned from my 40 days of testing in the power of the Spirit. The And the Lord gives me the Spirit without measure, without limitation. And so I know people use that to get people baptized in the Holy Spirit when they're having trouble speaking in tongues. I've used it that way too, but that's actually not what it means in context. This is all about kingdom breakthrough. And so the people of this age are often evil in their thoughts, their actions, their motives, but they still manage to give good gifts to their children. Now I know for those that have had you know, really bad families, this might not be strictly true, but directionally and in general, this is true in society across the world. And so even the unsaved uh, love their children and give them gifts. But your father, oh, he knows how to give even better gifts. And so he will give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him to do so. And the Holy Spirit is the one necessary component for the kingdom to come. This is why, going back to what we talked about last night, Luke 24, 49, stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power until the Spirit has come upon you. And then he repeats that same instruction in Acts 1.8. 
receive the Holy Spirit in order to do this. And then there are multiple infillings that can come after that. So if your tank's a little low, get into the filling station and get filled up. Your Father will give you the Spirit. Now, <clears throat> I want to close with just a story that really illustrates what I'm talking about. Um, there's a, a woman that I know. She's a, uh, now I think she's in her 30s, but when I met her, she was in her mid-20s, and she lives in the area of Washington, D.C. She started coming to my meetings several years ago, and one day she approached me. I'm, you know, I recognized her, but we'd never really communicated at all, and she wanted prayer, and she said, I have this condition, and there's a medical term for it, but I, I can't pronounce it, and I don't remember it anyway. So she had this condition, but what it does is it gives you fissures, cracks in your body. And where they happen is in your armpits and right here in your groin where the leg joins the trunk of the body. And so she tells me, I have these fissures in my body, and they're, they're about this wide, and they're about this long, and they leak pus continually. And so I have to change the dressings multiple times a day because the dressings get saturated. There's always a little bit of an odor, and it's really embarrassing to me. And she goes, here, she pulls out her phone. She goes, look at my armpits. And, of course, because of this, she can't shave, so she's embarrassed because she's not shaved her armpits. And I can see these cracks in her armpits. She didn't show me the ones down here, obvious reasons. But, um, but same idea. And she goes, can you pray for me? I'm like, Sure. So I pray for her, and, you know, we go after it hard, and nothing happens. And over a period of months that turn into years, everywhere I go on the East Coast, she shows up for prayer. Sometimes she'll contact me ahead or my assistant and say, you know, can, can we have a little more time for prayer than just in the general meeting? Can I get a prayer appointment? And so I'm, I'm chasing this thing down with her, uh, seeking her healing. And, uh, you know, months roll by. They turn into years. And finally, it's about five years into this process, five years, multiple engagements a year, whether in D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, down in Atlanta. If I'm in the Carolinas, she'll go there. She's come to Boston a few times. I mean, if I'm on the East Coast, she's there too. And so she contacts me when I'm going to be in New York City, and she goes, can we pray again? And I said yes, but in my heart, I'm going, Jesus, I have nothing left. I've used every single tool and trick and every scripture, everything you've ever taught me with this woman. I literally don't know what to do. I've told her yes, but I'm out of gas. I'm, I just, I got nothing. And so she shows up at the meeting, and then we, a friend of mine had an apartment, so we go to the friend's apartment, and she brought a friend with her. Just so you know, I'm not meeting with women alone. Um, so it's, it's her and me and these two other women, and we're sitting there, and we sit down to pray, and I put my hand on her back, and I'm just like, <sighs> and you know, it says in one place that Jesus, when he, when he healed a man, he looked up to heaven and he said, <sighs> Ephatha, he just sighed, and that's what I did, I wasn't trying to mimic Jesus, I just, I, would, I had nothing, and I'm like, Lord, I, I'm not having fun anymore, this isn't working, I know what this says, but that's not my lived reality. And just then the word of the Lord came to me. And the word of the Lord showed me exactly what the issue was. And I spoke into that thing. And she spins her head around and she goes, I've just been healed. I said, are you sure? She goes, I felt power go through my body. 
and she has, a, it's summer in New York, so she's got a short sleeve shirt on. She goes, look, I'm sitting right there. She goes, look, she holds up her arm and kind of yanks her sleeve down, and this open fissure is sealed and closed. Well, the next day when we start the meeting, she comes in, she goes, both sides, upstairs and downstairs, everything is sealed and done. Now, the thing that's really odd about this is that the, the word the Lord gave me for her healing, it was in fact actually not, it wasn't like some weird arcane thing. It was actually fairly clear, and so I wasn't intelligent or attuned enough to get it sooner. Maybe she could have been healed years before. You know, sometimes the, the disciples act like the three stooges, and sometimes I do too. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so could, possibly she could have been healed before this. But actually, that breakthrough healing has become the key to many other healings of conditions, not just that one, but that have similar kinds of roots and related things. So I'm like, wow, that was a... That was a really important victory that we got. And, you know, one of her big concerns, I don't want to be indecent or indelicate here, but she was an unmarried young woman, and she was concerned, what's going to happen if I've got this going on when I get married? And not too long after that, she met a guy and got married. And, uh, you know, they, they got married. So she sends me a message. She goes, the wedding night was flawless. And I'm like, okay, that's all I need to know. But you know, in that, we see something, that your father cares about the most intimate details of your life. Those funny little things that you wouldn't even dare to talk about with your best friend. He cared enough that he took care of the business. I don't know why it had to be five years. I don't have an answer to that one. And that's not a wise question to ask. When people do that, they almost always turn it into accusation, hurled at God. Why didn't you do it sooner? I don't know, because the prayer minister was an idiot, that's why. But... Or maybe her husband wasn't ready for it, yeah. So he could take his five years to heal her, although, you know, why not just heal her and let her, you know, get on with life? I don't know. But anyway, the bottom line, I really want to encourage you with that because this is the principle in operation. It took five years. I probably prayed for this woman six times, seven times a year, maybe eight times a year. And we didn't get breakthrough, and we didn't get breakthrough, and we didn't get breakthrough. But I was like, Father, there's an answer out there. There's an answer in you. I know there's an answer. And in that last time, the word of the Lord came to me, and she felt virtue, like it says of the woman with the issue of blood. Boosh! She knew she'd been healed, and so had this young woman. And she pulled down her sleeve to show me her armpit, which is kind of weird and gross, but in the moment, it was glorious and beautiful. By the way, the next morning when she came to church, she'd shaved her armpits. <laughs> so my, yeah, TMI, TMI, TMI. So my encouragement to you is ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking, but don't just do it in a vacuum. Take the preamble to the prayer really seriously. Father, your name is sacred and holy, and I don't use it for anything else. Let your kingdom come. And in that, your father will give you breakthroughs that you never dreamed of. I've got many more stories like this, but that's enough and we're out of time. So amen and amen.